Before we do that, though, I wanted to take today to spend some time in the Word looking at another issue, because if there's anything that I've heard questions about or comments about over the last couple of weeks, maybe second to the move and the sale of the building and all those other things, it is, what do I think about the Supreme Court decision on June 26 to legalize same-sex marriages? There have been, of course, a lot of people who are stirred up by this very landmark decision. A lot of people who are stirred up because, uh, uh, because of their angst of what they see happening in society around them. I'm not a uh, purveyor of social media. I don't really participate much, but I understand that the message boards and the message threads on various social media have been dominated by the subject, understandably, for weeks But unfortunately, what little I have been exposed to has confirmed to me what I've seen too often in the past, and that is Christians responding to even this tragic event as something of self-righteous moral reformers or condescending moralizers within society. I understand Like any believer, I understand, I I feel the same grief whenever you have seen your nation slipping morally for years and then in one fell swoop, it seems like the whole ground now has given way under you. And I, I understand all of that feeling, but at the same time, I listen, and even in my own experience, seeming, uh, Seemingly an increasing focus, whether it's in the newspapers or the blogs or the radio, to the world as it just simply observes the Christian response to what's taking place. And what's being reported are rallying, demonstrating, protesting, boycotting anyone or anything that might conflict with what Christians think of as traditional values. There have been renewed efforts at funding campaigns and launching legal suits and recruiting new candidates. I heard this week even about a convention specifically targeting uh, the the potential of luring uh, pastors out of pulpits and into the political realm in order to retake our country. Calls for civil disobedience, threats of renouncing citizenships, calls for a new revolution within our country and against our government. In the midst of all the headlines, the normal Christian, the average Christian is left wondering With all this chaos, what do we do? What am I supposed to do? Can I do anything? Am I supposed to simply run away from it all? Should I just run off to the wilderness, build a compound, sort of establish a secluded society? Or or do I respond at all? In fact, so many believers feel the nervous energy of of the angst within them. They're compelled, they sense, to direct it somewhere. And unfortunately, it comes out in these uh, social venues or these online venues or whatever it might be, voicing their disgust, chiding their judges, land blasting their president, threatening their politicians. And all the while, they're just left wondering, what can we do? Is there anything that we can do to respond? Is our only option to passively and quietly endure as we sit on the sidelines and watch our culture and our nation slide into moral chaos. Well, when we look into the New Testament, the clear answer to that question would be yes. There is much that you can do. The problem is, it's just not what you normally hear from the evangelical community. It's not what the Christian culture would typically tell you you need to give your time and attention to. Many, as I said, have chosen to launch campaigns against their culture, against candidates, whether it's verbal or whether it's full-fledged political campaigns to oust candidates or to move elections, too often opting for what are essentially the same tactics as all the other unbelieving special interest groups around them, characterized many times by the same mean-spirited rhetoric and the same plots that puts their opponents on defensive like every other group out there. And the end result is that all those who call themselves Christians often find themselves 
as the verbal and active enemies of the very unbelieving world that they are supposed to be evangelizing. In doing this, along the way, they divert enormous amounts of energy and financial resources away from the primary task of the church, which is evangelism, and find themselves in an antagonistic position to a secular culture, leading them to feel in their own hearts a sense of hostility towards the unsaved government, their unsaved leaders, their unsaved neighbors with whom they disagree, and for whom they ought to be praying and loving and sharing the gospel with. In some ways, believers today are repeating the same mistakes that the church has repeated historically. Probably the most glaring example of that would be the Crusades. A generation of, uh, uh, during the time of the church when they felt compelled for what they thought were good biblical reasons to want to take active and militant stances against the Muslim world and particularly for the effort of recapturing the Middle East recapturing the city of Jerusalem because they had the misguided notion that somehow that geographical territory belonged in some special way to God and that therefore their efforts, whatever they might be, would necessarily be attended by God's blessings as they tried to overtake the, the, the leadership and the power structures of those, of those areas. The effect of all that, of course, is obvious. That in the 900 years intervening, there has been what is essentially a credibility deficit within the Middle East and the Muslim world against Christians, against Christianity, and against the gospel. That to this day, 900 years later, the effect is essentially a PR blight against the message of the gospel, where those tragic events from so long ago are still brought forward to discredit believers and to discredit our mission. There have been other attempts, whether it's the Anabaptist revolts during the Reformation where they believed that it was necessary for them to overtake the political structures of their day in the in the, in the sweeping wars of those times, many times the, the valuable doctrinal contributions that they would have made were overshadowed by the misguided political motivations of their leaders. Or whether it is the conflicts of Northern Ireland where the Protestants are always uh, trying to battle against their Catholic uh, counterparts. And the result in almost every situation is more hardened lines between those who claim to know the truth and the very ones that they are supposed to be evangelizing. There is fear, there is suspicion, there is doubt, there's animosity. And it's not as if we don't feel the same impulses. We grieve. We see our nation under moral duress. We We have a longing to want to take up arms. We understand all of that. We are not rejoicing in the slide to vulgarity and deceit and indecency that takes place around us. But in the midst of our grief, it is helpful for us to reflect on the fact that we are not the first to live in a debauched society. In fact, our nation and our society has not yet reached the full depths of moral decadence that even was reflected in the New Testament era. Jesus himself lived in a time and a culture that was every bit as immoral, in fact, more immoral than our own. He, he suffered under the oppressive regime of a ruler named Herod who slaughtered his own wives so that he could marry others. In fact, one point marrying his sister-in-law illegally, he slaughtered his sons or any other person that he perceived to be a political enemy. Sometimes in broad daylight, he was known because of his cruelty. He was known because of his injustice. And yet he was really just a vassal politician within a greater Roman empire, which tolerated his injustices because they, he gave stability to what was their primary interest in Jewish territory, which was its tax base. The Roman government was a greedy government, 
And they had an interest in the Middle East primarily because it was the crossroads of the world. They collected poll taxes on all of the goods which traveled across its roads on top of all of the what we would call income taxes of the day. And along the way, the Jews, along with nearly every other person in the empire, were subject to the exploitation of a corrupt tax administration where tax officials were allowed to target individuals and extort money from them almost at will. People, of course, found these kind of conditions dire. Understandably, they were, they were grieved so that people were either constantly launching or, or planning in the days of Christ, in the days of the New Testament, rebellion against their government, efforts to install certain rulers or to overthrow others. In fact, Jesus' followers themselves had the same expectation of Him. They just assumed that someone with the, with the moral Uh, faculties of Christ and the commitments that he had, they just assume that a part of his agenda would be some grand activity, some major campaign to take the culture and the nation for Christ, as we would say in modern terms, to free them from all the moral corruption, to at least rally against it. But amazingly, even while Jesus never condoned any of this corrupt activity, Never once did he organize a rally against it or call for one. He never called for any military overthrow, much less a political campaign at all. He never hinted at some impressive strategy for establishing biblical morality or social justice or political freedom throughout the Roman Empire. He never encouraged his followers to seek it. Matter of fact, when he looked at unjust Leaders, he would say things like he said of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Jesus had respect. He had submissiveness. Even if he understood the immoral and hypocritical lifestyle of those who were the leaders. When he was brought before Pilate, you remember, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is saying, look, my kingdom is not comprised of the kind of of structures in which you operate, King Herod or, or Pilate. My kingdom is not constructed that way, if it was, then it would be natural for my, or for my followers to organize themselves in some power struggle, whether it be military or political or something. That would make sense if this was the way my kingdom operated, but my kingdom isn't that way, and so therefore they don't. This was a radical point of view for Christ, and one that he passed on to the early church that they were citizens, first and foremost, of heaven. And their primary focus then is a life not of political activism, but of holy living and of seeking and saving the lost. Jesus never encouraged them to look to the government in order to establish or uphold biblical standards of living. Instead, the consistent message was them for them to live out and to proclaim that message with their own lives. Of course, when you read the epistles of the New Testament, you see the same thing. That in spite of living in one of the most morally corrupt governments in history, there was never a call to rally against it. Paul himself spoke of the relationship of the believer to the government uh, a number of times. Never once did he make any calls for activism or resistance against those Regimes. This is in spite of the fact that in the New Testament era, 14 of the first 15 Caesars were practicing homosexuals. The Emperor Claudius famously married his brother's daughter, Agrippina. Or Tiberius 
regularly held sexual orgies in his palace where participants were put on the imperial payroll to perform homosexual acts in front of the emperor for his entertainment. So this was essentially tax-funded sexual deviation. Tiberius, Emperor Tiberius was known widely as a child molester. The Emperor Caligula, of course, had a reputation for having intimate relations with every one of his sisters. Nero actually had a ceremony in the royal palace where he was married to a young boy named Sporus. So until you hear of ceremonies taking place in our White House, where our nation's leaders are conducting themselves in that way, we, we haven't seen anything. And it wasn't just in the royal palace. It was all over. I mean, every town had its uh, uh, idols and temples, and so many of them were themselves enshrined with uh, sacred pillars and cult objects, many of which were, were visibly offensive to Jews. They were morally offensive in their presentation. And along with that, there was sacred prostitution everywhere. In many corners, the, the meat which was sacrificed during some of these cultic and, and immoral practices would in turn be sold in the meat market so that you could hardly escape any of the corruption even in your casual shopping every day. And all of these things naturally would have brought genuine disgust to the average believer. But in the midst of all of it, the consistent call, whether it be from the Apostle Paul or from the Apostle Peter, wasn't to treat all of the surrounding unconverted society as somehow an enemy, but it was to look at them as, uh, as a mission field. In other words, there was just as profound a desire on their part as there ever has been in any society that there would be some some deep and profound change. There was just as much of a desire for them to do that as anyone else. But there was equally a deep sense of the means by which God has called us to do it. Now, with all that in mind, I want you to turn to Titus, because I want to take our remaining time to just briefly walk through one particular passage that speaks to us as believers and speaks very specifically to our relationship with our government and our society. And what we find in this passage is certainly not a call to passivity and quiet endurance. In fact, it's a very active uh, call a very active pursuit. It's a passage is full of action. It's full of zeal. It's full of engagement with the culture in ways, however, that are different than the typical evangelical response that you hear in the media today. Paul says in Titus chapter two, verse eleven, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all. For we we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works, we do, works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent 
and profitable for people. There's a lot in this passage, no doubt. But we could begin just simply by noting that the entire passage is really bracketed by one dominating reality. It is the transforming reality that the Savior has appeared. You see it in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And you see it down in chapter 3, verse 5. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And in both passages, it is a reference to the historical appearing of Jesus Christ our Savior. And so the emphasis throughout the entire passage is that this is a reality that changed everything for us. If we are believers, this gospel reality, this remembrance of what God has done through Christ in the gospel transforms our outlook on life. It transforms our purpose in life, our pursuits. It transforms what we put our hope in, what we hope for. It transforms the way we view authority, the way we talk to authority, talk about authority, and everything that we do in the way we relate to society around us. It transforms all of us. And Paul tells us that this grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Not in the sense that every single individual is saved. That would contradict things that Paul had already said to Titus earlier. Paul's not suggesting that every person responds to Christ in the same way and every person receives salvation. He was not naive that there were still people who were, who were rebellious against their maker and against their God. But what he's saying is, he's using this indefinite noun, which in Greek simply refers to categories or classes. And what he's saying is that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all kinds of people, all classes of people. In other words, there's an emphasis that God's salvation was indiscriminate in regard to rank, in regard to class, in regard to race. And in regard to background. And all this really sets the stage for our interaction. Because what Paul's going to tell us. Is that our interaction with the world around us. Needs to be equally unbiased. We we do not hold our graces and kindnesses for certain people. We do not extend the grace of Christ to only certain classes. Our reaction, what the gospel teaches us, it teaches us for every class of people. And what does it teach us? Paul says this gospel-centered life, this historical reality teaches us, among other things, to be focused on good deeds. That is the other thing which binds this passage together as Paul repeats it over and over and over again throughout the passage. These good deeds which ought to primarily uh, uh, mark our life now, which in contrast didn't mark our life before Christ. And so this is really a passage that calls us this this gospel-centered life within the midst of a corrupt society, within a, a society even as corrupt as Rome, even as unjust as the Roman government. It calls us to a transformed life full of the evidence of good deeds. Life transformed by the gospel and useful to the Lord for the building up of His kingdom and His purposes. It is that life, by the way, all the way bound in verse 8 of chapter 3, which Paul says is excellent and profitable for people. Like all of the first eight verses of chapter 3, he's talking about primarily unbelieving people. It's profitable For society, it's profitable for your culture, it's profitable for your nation, it's profitable for the gospel, it's profitable for God's kingdom and His glory. In other words, this is a prescription for an impactful life. A life that really makes a difference in your culture. John MacArthur puts it this way, he says... Quote, a godly attitude coupled with godly living makes the saving message of the gospel credible to the unsaved. If we 
claim to be saved, but still convey proud, unloving attitudes toward the lost, our preaching and teaching, no matter how doctrinally orthodox or politically savvy and persuasive, will be ignored and rejected. End quote. And so throughout this passage, what Paul's really telling these believers and what he's really telling us are a number of things which ought to characterize a profitable life within a, a pagan culture. What ought to characterize a Christian life within a corrupt culture. And he tells us, among other things, that first of all, this life ought to be characterized by a renunciation of worldly pursuits. A renouncing, a renouncing of worldly pursuits. God's grace has appeared teaching us, among other things, that the world isn't worth pursuing. It teaches us the lostness of our own soul, the lostness of our own pathway, the lostness of mankind. It teaches us the corrupting influence of sin, the corruption of sin, not only in our own lives, but on society. As John says in 1 John 3, you know that He appeared... In order to take away sins. And in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, if you understand why God appeared, then you understand that Christ appeared not to save you in your sins, but to save you from your sins. And if you don't understand that, and if there's no separation from your sins, you don't understand why he came. And so the appearing of Christ, the knowledge of His grace, teaches us, it trains us to renounce, Paul says, first of all, ungodliness. It's a broad term. We don't want to get into it, but simply it's this. It is that life which which is lived as if God did not exist. It is the God-less life. Or in modern terms, we would say the secular life. The life that is lived is if the only realities that matter are the ones that you can touch and see and taste and feel and hear. And Paul says the gospel first and foremost trains you to renounce that perspective. And along with that perspective, often it leads to the second thing that we need to renounce, which is worldly passions, literally worldly desires or desires for worldly things. The word is simply epithumia. It's a neutral word. It doesn't have positive or negative connotations. So Paul is simply talking about the desire for the world, the desire for worldly things, the life that is filled with the things of the world. It's consumed with the dreams and the longings of the world, the dreams and the longings that consume the world. And it's the things of the world that Christ told us so often choke out The fruit of God's word that's been sown in our hearts. It is those things which the appearing of the grace of God and salvation taught us are passing away. Those things are passing away. Even your nation, even your government, your constitution, everything that you see and touch and feel in this life, every one of them are temporal And we're awaiting a government that will rest upon the shoulders of a child that's been born to us. Having renounced those things, Paul says the gospel secondly teaches us to be zealous for good works. Verse 14, that in the appearing of Christ, He saved us and gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Works. He'll mention it again in chapter 3, verse 1, that we ought to be prepared for good works. Chapter 3, verse 5, we formerly lived a life without good works. Chapter 8, Titus needs to insist on good works. And all the way down in chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 14, all the way down, he'll say again that people need to devote themselves to good works. I mean, this is the, the, one of the dominant highlights of the passage, the, the, the tremendous contrast that Paul says our lives ought to be demonstrating in regard to what we pursue and the zeal that we have, not for worldly attachments and worldly possessions, but our zeal, our planning, our focus, our sacrifices ought to be for what? For good works. Zealous, not in the sense that you'll have this undying emotional enthusiasm, but in the sense that this is what you are deeply committed to. As Paul says in Romans 6, you make the members of your body slaves. 
to righteousness. Back in verse 12, he described this new life as one which is living self-controlled, upright, and godly in the present age. He's used self-controlled already four times in the book of Titus. He talked about it in chapter 1 with elders. He talked about it in chapter 2 with older women and then younger women and then younger men. And in all those cases, it essentially has the same perspective. It is, in some cases, it's translated a sober mind, but it simply refers to a mind which isn't controlled by some external substance. It is controlled, in other words, by an internal conviction, an internal understanding of truth. This is the kind of person who doesn't allow themselves to be distracted or or taken off course by circumstances, by all that goes on around them. This is the person who is, who is drug away with the irresponsible influences and allows all that stuff to cloud their judgment. This is the person, in other words, who knows how to avoid things which are both unspiritual and immoral. But even beyond that, this is the person who understands how to avoid what is trivial and what is unproductive. What is merely passing. Paul adds to that the word upright or righteous in some translations. It simply means right according to God's standard. Right according to what His Word defines as right. Not conforming to the moral pattern of this world. But being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word of God. And then finally, he says we're to live godly in this present age. It's simply the opposite of the God-less life. This is a, a life that's not characterized by indifference toward God. Instead, it replaces all that with a consciousness and a conscientiousness of God. Or we might say with a fear of God. A fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. And so all three of these words point to a life that's lived in light of the truth, where your actions where your attitudes are not governed by what takes place in the headlines around you. It's not governed by the circumstances around you. It is governed, first of all, by a fear of the Lord, and second of all, by what you understand from His Word. Thirdly, an impactful life, he says, is hopeful for another world. Paul says it there in verse 13, the grace of Christ appears instructing us to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't read that and read hope the way that we often mean it in the sense that it's just sort of speculation. Hope in the New Testament sense is a confident certainty, a confident expectation. And what he's saying is that we as believers live our lives with a confident expectation in the return of Christ. And this is the difference between maybe a person who has nervous anxiousness as they gamble away their money on a lottery ticket, hoping that this time they might luck out, versus the person who has a confident expectation as the heir of an estate because he has seen the written will and he knows what his inheritance is. Paul says we live with a confident expectation of what is coming to us, a confident expectation of what is ahead. We're certain of the Lord's return, His glorious appearing, and that expectation transforms the way we look at the world. It transforms the goals that we set. It transforms the way that we deal with disappointments. It transforms the way that we understand victory and defeat. Perhaps one of the reasons that Christians get so wrapped up with political wranglings and political schemes is because they have somehow lost focus on this expectation of another world. Or they have convinced themselves that somehow God intended them to be comfortable in this world, in this life. That somehow God intended them to live in a culture that is at ease. Or maybe they have this idea that, that, that God expects that the whole world would agree with their biblical morality. That somehow in their minds, this is the picture that they have formed. But with every rejection by our government, by our culture. It ought to be a fresh reminder that we're not citizens of this land. 
We're not citizens of this earth. It ought to deepen our longing for the return of Christ. Fourth, Paul adds a call for Titus in particular to be courageous in the proclamation of these truths. He says in verse 15, declare these things. Exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's literally just a command to speak. Lale is the word in the Greek. Just speak it, Titus. Against all the the temptations toward timidity and fear, maybe on one hand a... uh, uh, a temptation to, like so many, bow to the pressure of the culture and the spirit of the age and to say what is accommodating to the spirit of the times, or on the other hand, to pursue some sort of power structure within the world and to forget the fact that God sovereignly reigns over all, you need to speak these things. You need to declare these things. You need to make these truths known over and over and over again. What truths? Well, the ones he just talked about in verses 11 through 14, the realities of what the gospel ought to be teaching us. And not only that, but even the ones in the following verses, in verses 1 through 8, when Paul comes down at the end of that, he says again in verse 8, These are trustworthy sayings, and I want you to insist on them. Timothy, I want you to declare. I want you to insist. I want you to, as he says, with all authority. Don't stand and tell people these things as if they're your personal opinion on how someone should conduct themselves. Don't stand as if they're your your particular theological bent. Speak them with authority for what they are. They are the message of God, he says. And in line with that, let no one disregard you. The word is kata freneo. Kata meaning around and freneo for think. Let no one think around you. Let no one dodge your exhortations. Let no one make excuses. Let no one evade. Let no one justify their worldly perspective. Let no one ignore the clear prescriptions from the word of God on these matters, he says. Speak with authority. Make the word of God and the will of God known. In an age when political correctness rules and so many people have soft-pedaled a message to a palatable form for a worldly-minded crowd or in an age where people have essentially jettisoned their trust in the Lord and pursue the power structures of this world, speak, speak these things. Speak them with authority. Fifth, Paul says, an understanding of the grace of God and what a beneficial life will be within society demands that we be subject to governing authorities. The clear command in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient and ready for every good work. It's a short imperative Because all really Titus is doing, he's just reminding them. Something apparently Paul had already taught them, maybe similar to what he taught the Romans in Romans 13, that every governing authority, whether local or national, whether moral or immoral, whether just or unjust, righteous or evil, every one of them, every structure, every leader, has been established by God. And these governing authorities established by God are given by God with a mandate to provide basic order out of chaos, to punish socially destructive behavior and to reward or provide for good behavior. The idea of government, even all the various manifestations of government in all its various forms all over the world, all exist according to the will of God. And so to set yourself in opposition to the government is to set yourself in in, in opposition to God. And so Paul calls you to be submissive. It's It's a passive or some people think a middle form here where you are to submit yourself. You shouldn't have to be compelled. You shouldn't have to be forced. You shouldn't have to be chased. You shouldn't have to be sued to make you submissive to the government. Christianity, in other words, should not make you a problem citizen. It should make you a model citizen. And the Bible doesn't give you any sort of angle by which you can revolt against civic duties, but rather it calls you steadfastly to enforce 
or, or, or for them to be enforced in your life. Romans 13, let every person, excuse me, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities, resist what God has appointed. And Paul says, those who resist will incur judgment. First Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. You know, it's really one of the tragedies of the of all of the political organizing and lobbying of the evangelical movement, that in all their petty pursuits for legislative change, they over and over present God as just one more voice in the, in the cacophonious crowd of lobbying groups. They don't march forward under the banner of a God who has established all the government, who has appointed all the leaders, who reigns over all those things. But they they present themselves as just one more shrill group in their desperate attempts to effect minor change. In all their legislative and sometimes legal defeats, the Christian right has come across as just one more defeated special interest group rather than those who stand triumphantly over the sovereign king of kings. So Paul doesn't give them the counsel here to make some sort of rally or campaign. He calls them to submit to what the Lord has established. He doesn't give any qualification. He doesn't give any qualification in Romans 13. Peter doesn't give any in 1 Peter chapter 2. They're just stated plainly, although we understand that even Peter found himself in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. He found himself in a place where a specific government command mandated that he would deny obedience to God. And he concluded with the other apostles, if it's, if it's what you want to do, that's fine. But we, we must obey God rather than men. And there will be those rare occasions where a government mandate may, may demand that you specifically disobey the Scripture, in which case you cannot obey. But you're still, just like the apostles, to submit to the punishment. You are to submit to the penalty whether it's legal, whether it's financial, or whatever it might be. They took their lashes and they rejoiced at the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul says we need to be obedient. We need to be, he says, ready for every good work. This is vital to your calling and your witness. In fact, every time the Christian's obligation to the government is mentioned in Scripture, this aspect is highlighted, good work. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution which are sent by God to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Paul says you need to be engaged in good works and don't go out there under the banner of freedom and use that as some sort of cover-up for your own arrogance and for your own uh, quarreling and for your own uh, worldly pursuits or whatever it might be. Don't use some banner of freedom as a cover-up for all those other things. You need to be engaged in the kind of good works which will put to silence your your so-called opponents. Romans 13 Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive praise or approval in some translations. This is the good conduct that Paul's calling for here. Be ready for it. If you wonder what that is, Romans 13 gives you just a basic list to begin with. Pay your taxes. Respect governing authorities. 
show honor to the king. Just to begin with. Paul could say this, even though in his day, the kings, the emperors, the rulers were anything but morally honorable. And yet there was still an obligation to honor them. That leads naturally to the sixth definition of this impactful life of the gospel, what it will look like, and that is simply kind speech. Be kind in your speech. Speak, as he says in verse 2, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. And this, no doubt, in light of the context and in light of other passages of Scripture that talk about our relationship to the government, this, no doubt, is specifically targeting evil that we would speak about governing authorities. We are to show them honor that is due to their office, and we are to be set apart from other people who would speak in denigrating tones of their political and social opponents. Paul doesn't show any concern that somehow in showing honorable speech to your governing leaders that you would inadvertently be endorsing their policies or their ungodly lifestyle. But this is what you're to do. You will speak of them and when you do, you speak respectfully and honorably. And furthermore, what are you not to do? Avoid quarreling. Obviously, in the light of the context, this is quarreling about political and national issues. We're not to be like the unbelieving world. We're not to look at the unbelieving world as our enemies. We don't want to foster a reputation as rabble-rousing malcontents within society. We don't want to behave in a way that cultivates either antagonism and defensiveness from us, or that generates hostility among fellow believers against the very ones that we're called to reach. Our calling is not to engage in arguments with these people, with our neighbors, with various political parties, or even with media outlets. Our calling is to evangelize them. They're not the enemy. They are the mission field. And so Paul says, show perfect courtesy to all of them. All people. You'll see it there at the end of verse 2. In fact, this is our seventh principle that defines this impactful and profitable life. The way it's profitable because it's just simply gentle and courteous toward others. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. And he's obviously moving now beyond the government because he says this is for all people. This is for your adulterous neighbor who's cheated on his wife and abused his kids. This is for your uh, swindling neighbor. This is for your homosexual neighbor. When you interact with with them, when you engage with them, it ought to be with gentleness. It ought to be with perfect courtesy, hostility, suspicion, antipathy, aversion, avoidance, roughness, bad-temperedness, whatever it might be. All of those are off the table as inconsistent with what the gospel and the appearing of Christ should have taught you. This is the way you are to respond, not selectively, not to those that are easy, not to those who are allies, but this is the way you are to respond. How? Toward all people. No exceptions, no omissions. All classes, all races, all levels, all people. And why? I mean, how, how, how can you do that when these are the very people who by their foolish choices, you, you thinking, are somehow destroying our nation, burdening our society, bankrupting our children? How can, you, how can you force yourself to speak courteously and kindly and gently to all these people? Well, that's the final principle in this impactful life that Paul says we'll have. And that is simply that we are always mindful of our former lostness. Because we remember, he says, that we too were once foolish. That is, we operated with this uninformed world, this flawed mindset because of sin. We were, he says, disobedient. We had our own unwillingness to yield to the Word of God and to His 
moral code. We, as he says, were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. All the the terms here talking about the fact that we were essentially controlled, just like all of they are, by whatever passions they might be, whether it's materialism, sensuality, arrogance, self-seeking, whatever it is that you see driving them in the way that they're driving them, you were there. Paul says we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is the way you used to be characterized. But what Paul's saying is that since the gospel has come, that should have no place among you, in your homes, in your relationships, in your churches, or in your interactions with society. Formerly full of malice, full of envy, always battling, always disputing, always fighting. Now he says... None of that is profitable for the gospel. It's not profitable. Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of good works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. God showed you kindness Not because you were doing the right thing. God showed you kindness not because of your good works. It wasn't because you were responsive. It wasn't because you were submissive. It wasn't because you were humble. Apart from your good works. Not because of your good works. However you want to talk about that. God still showed you kindness and mercy. We were rebellious, we were foolish, we were disobedient, just like our Supreme Court justices, just like our governmental leaders, just like those in the society around us, like all those who are out uh, uh, protesting and rallying and quarreling and all that other stuff. We were like that, difficult to get along with, and yet God showed us kindness. And so our calling isn't to answer all of their quarreling and all of their rallying with our own quarrels and our own rallies. Our call isn't to answer all of that with our own arguments. Our call is to answer it with clearly transformed lives. With lives that make a clear declaration of the gospel. And who validate it by good works. We're not passive bystanders. We don't sit by and just watch as our culture plummets into moral chaos. We are zealous. We are active. But our pursuits are eternal. And our goals are good works.